turn with me again this week to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, <coughs> chapter 7. We'll read a larger passage than, than we normally uh, look at this morning. We, we began looking at this last week. Um, chapter 7, verse 31, all the way through chapter 8, verse 26. And we consider this uh, as a whole this morning. So here God's holy and foul word, beginning in Mark 7, verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Capitalists. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay uh, his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with his saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. And the impediment in his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. He gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you not do you have a heart in heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said, in twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. 
And then again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored. He began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. No reading there. I think one of the most fascinating geographical features of the United States of uh, North America is uh, the Continental Divide, not just you know, 40, 50 miles um, from here. Um, or of course, all the water on on one side flows eventually to the Pacific Ocean if it gets to an ocean, and on the other side to the uh, Atlantic Ocean. One commentator um, suggests that uh, we're leading up here to um, particularly verse chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, which we'll look at next week, uh, is a sort of continental divide in Mark's gospel here. Uh, we're leading up to that in this passage here. There's significant differences before um, that point and after that point. Peter's confession, uh, you are the Christ. Um, After that passage we'll look at next week, there are no more commands to silence when Jesus heals someone or casts out a demon. There are no more commands to not tell about it. Uh, There's no more wandering itinerary for Jesus going here and there up to Galilee and into Gentile places and other places. The rest of the book he'll be going to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem uh, with a clear purpose. Uh, Jesus will then start uh, repeatedly predicting his death, his suffering and his death for the rest of the book as well. In a sense, on the other side of that continental divide, everything will be downhill to Jerusalem, downhill to Jesus' death on the cross. So one thing, though, that doesn't change, uh, this side, that side of this continental divide, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark, is the continued struggle of the disciples to keep up and to understand um, and to grow. Uh, they do, eventually. Uh, they become wise sacrificial servants and and leaders in the church, but not without fits and starts um, and and through a a progression. And so uh, this passage again provides us with another illustration of the struggle for progress in the Christian life uh, for all of us and lessons for the disciples, lessons for all of us as disciples Uh, and lessons that will continue, I think, even more powerfully into next week. Next week we'll look at at verse 27 through the end of the chapter, which is a very central and particularly uh, powerful and important uh, passage in the whole gospel and all the gospels uh, in Jesus' call to discipleship. Um, I encourage you to, to read ahead and, and think about that as well. But looking at number one in your outline here, I, I want to just look at the, the big passage. We looked at a good bit of this passage last week. Um, but I want to look at the big picture uh, first here and, and look at the end. We, did, we didn't look at the... Um, uh, Jesus' healing of the blind man here. This blind man is brought to Jesus. Uh, he's healed. Uh, we'll come back to that later. Last week we looked at the very beginning of this passage, the healing of a deaf man. Uh, right, And this, this whole passage, I think, is two healings on either end with the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus' uh, interaction with the Pharisees uh, and the disciples in between. Uh, why would we see this as a, as a connected uh, passage here? Well, there, there are several connections and reasons, I think, to see these two miracles at the beginning and the end um, in, in close connection to each other and, and in connection to this whole passage here. And that's why I'm calling it something of a, a miracle sandwich, uh, if you will. So, 
the first reason to see those connections is because some, some really close parallels between these two miracles. Not each of these things is unique to any of Jesus' miracles, but they're interesting that they, they, they match closely uh, between these two. So in both cases, a man is brought to Jesus, and his friends are begging that Jesus would touch him and, and heal him. Um, in both cases, Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd. He takes him away from everyone else, which is somewhat unique. Um, in both cases, Jesus touches the man right where he's going to heal him. He touches his ears, he touches his eyes. In both cases, Jesus spits uniquely. As I said last week, I don't have a good reason to tell you why, why he does that particularly. And in both cases, he, he gives some command about what the healed person is, is not to do. So there are those close parallels. But secondly, there's the, the theme in the scriptures of spiritual ears and eyes, having ears to hear and having eyes to see, that prompts us to see a connection here, I think. Because in the, in the middle of this sandwich, if you will, is Jesus' dismay and warnings to the Pharisees and to his disciples about what, what basically amounts to spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness to who he is and, and what he's doing. And the Old Testament repeatedly anticipates God one day, or specifically his Messiah, bringing hearing and bringing sight uh, to people, uh, both literally but also figuratively, to people who are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. We find that uh, through the book of Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah 35 last week, uh, anticipating God opening ears and opening eyes. Um, Ezekiel chapter 12 will be another uh, example of this theme where God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. People who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not. And so I think this, this broader passage we're looking at this morning in a sense mixes the literal and, and figurative or spiritual healing of ears and eyes. Um, making the point that Jesus is the one who can and will give spiritual sight, will give spiritual uh, ears to hear as well. So let's look at the middle of this, this sandwich, if you will, to see uh, lessons for the disciples, and then we'll come back to this, this second miracle uh, at the conclusion. So lessons to us through what Jesus is teaching the disciples here. Uh, the, the first, uh, summarized uh, as resist an invented Jesus. Resist an invented Jesus. After the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus' confrontation of the Pharisees that we looked at last week, Jesus then warns the disciples in verse 15, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And Mark tells us about some confusion then with the disciples about what, what Jesus is talking about. I, I um, a couple weeks ago, used an uh, example from... Uh, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, and that came to mind again. As there's a scene in that movie where Tevia, the main character, the father, goes to speak to the butcher, Razor Wolf, and he's going to talk to him about his daughter, Tevia's daughter, who wants to marry the butcher's husband, the butcher's son. Right? Well, the, they get in this conversation. The butcher thinks that they're talking about a cow. Right, that Tevia wants to have him butchered, and he's talking about his daughter. And, and so what ensues is a very funny conversation where they're talking past each other. There's something like that here. Where the, the disciples think that Jesus is talking about the fact that they've forgotten bread, which is a serious issue on their long trip across the lake. 
Um, and Jesus isn't talking about literal bread at all. They're talking past each other. And um, Jesus is using the common metaphor here of, of leaven, of yeast, um, basically referring to unbelief. The Pharisees or Herod and Herod's followers, their, their unbelief regarding Jesus and, and who he is. That yeast metaphor goes all the way back to the Exodus. Of course, when God commanded the, the people of Israel to put yeast, to put leaven out of their houses that night before they left as a symbol of setting themselves apart to the Lord, um, putting out sin and unbelief and believing in God that he was going to somehow deliver them from the Egyptians. And we can see how yeast and the dangerous teaching and example and unbelief of the Pharisees have some parallels, right? That, that kind of unbelief works invisibly or subtly like leaven, um, but, but powerfully and thoroughly. The Pharisees have their preconceived, man-conceived notions of what the Messiah is like, and it's making them unable to see the real Messiah, to see Jesus, and they're resisting the real Jesus, in a sense, for their invented Jesus. And, and so Jesus is warning the disciples of that entering their own hearts. Well, why is that a danger for the disciples? Uh, they've, they've been with Jesus. They're not actively rejecting him. But I think Jesus is warning if they don't fully comprehend who he is, what his kingdom is like, they, they too are in danger of rejecting um, his teaching, his promises, his call to repentance, particularly if they don't comprehend the necessity of his mission as one of suffering, his call to repentance, and not to just immediate success and victory and so on, they will fall away. And that's the very conflict that we come to next week in the passage next week and, and the shortcoming that we see they still have in their understanding. I think... Uh, Christianity around us in our culture is infected with a different but parallel um, leaven. There's equating Christianity with uh, the American dream or success or happiness or self-esteem. There are those who teach those things, self-esteem or prosperity or happiness as the goals of the Christian life. And those, those reflect invented Jesuses or at least partial Jesuses in, in a sense. They don't prepare Christians for a spiritual battle, the reality of suffering and the necessity of humility and, and threaten to lead people into unbelief, ultimately. In, in some ways, I think the, the disciples, the twelve disciples, were in, in greater danger. There was even more urgency for them to get this, um, get who Jesus really is because of their proximity to him. In a sense, because they were with him, the danger of supposing that because they knew him so well, they, they were with him so much that they sort of just added, automatically had what they needed. There, there's certainly a parallel danger for us in the possibility of having all the outward trappings of Christianity and a supposed proximity to Jesus that is no substitute for knowing the real Jesus. For, for knowing true discipleship. Again, we'll come back to that theme next week. Uh, secondly, letter B on your outline, uh, summarizing the lesson here is bring your questions, your doubts to Jesus. Verse 16 says, uh, uh, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? How are you so slow to understand, Jesus says to them. And unless that seem kind of harsh, just consider how many instances Mark gives in his gospel, the disciples not really getting it relative to bread and, and Jesus' miracles. So back to the feeding of 5,000. Uh, Jesus brought up the fact that people needed to eat, and the disciples' response, I'm paraphrasing, was, that's ridiculous, right? These people can't be fed out here. And then Jesus uses that to, to show himself as, as God Almighty who provides for his people in that incredible miracle. And then we come to chapter 8, and there's another huge crowd, and, and Jesus says, I feel compassion. These people are hungry. We should feed them. And the disciples, again, as if they hadn't seen the previous miracle, um, say, that's ridiculous. Verse 4, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And then again in verse 16 here, they're lacking bread. Right now it's the disciples themselves who don't have enough bread, and they're worried about it. They're not sure what to do. They think Jesus is criticizing them for not having bread. I think in every instance, Jesus is trying to teach the disciples to come to him. He's the one who provides. He delights to provide. He will provide. But he has, uh, he has answers. Uh, one clue to what, what Jesus is challenging them on uh, in verses 16 and 17 is this, this word that's used in both verses, uh, discuss. Uh, discuss is a pretty simple English word, but the, the Greek word that's behind it uh, as a more um, nuanced meaning. Um, in every use of that word in, in Mark's Gospel, uh, it's used of someone who's discussing uh, uh, apart from Jesus. Jesus is never part of a discussion, the word that's behind that. Or someone's wrestling in their own mind apart from Jesus. So here, here are some other examples of, of its use in Mark. In Mark chapter 2, um, Jesus pronounced the paralyzed man's sins forgiven. Then we read that some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. That's the same word there. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And it says Jesus knew what they were discussing within themselves. And he said, why are you discussing these things in your hearts? Very, very similar. Jesus is often asking people that question this, with this word. Mark chapter 9. Uh, we fast forward to there. Jesus teaches about his, his coming suffering and death. And it says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then Jesus later in the house asked them, what were you discussing on the way? In other words, you, you were trying to work this out on your own. You don't get it. But bring it to me. I, I will explain. Right. Mark chapter 11 is another example. Jesus challenges the Pharisees on where his authority comes from. And they're, they're kind of tripped up and trapped by this question. Says, and they, same word, disgusted uh, with one another. Not with Jesus. They say, well, if we say this, Jesus will say that. If we say this, he'll say that. So in every, in every instance of this word in Mark's gospel, someone who's not understanding Jesus and, and not, not coming to him for, for the answer. And so we apply that nuance here. His comment, why are you discussing this with one another? It would seem to mean, why, why are you trying to work this out on your own? Uh, bring it to me. He's not dismayed so much that they don't have full and perfect understanding yet. 
But that they keep failing to come to Him. Whether they need bread, whether they need understanding, spiritual eyes to see. And, and then he, he goes into this barrage of eight questions here. Verse 17, uh, do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a heart and heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? He asks about both uh, miracles of the bread. Um, and then verse 21 closes, do you not yet understand? that his own disciples are in danger of acting, of thinking like the Pharisees more than they know. Trying to figure out Jesus on their own terms. Right? Running into confusion and doubts and, and falling into unbelief is the danger. Rather than coming to him with their questions and confusions and doubts. And, and Jesus doesn't lack, again, he doesn't lack compassion for those who struggle to understand. There are many examples of Jesus graciously giving understanding and helping people along. But he has little patience for those who will not humbly learn from him or come to him. And so I just encourage you to, again, go to Jesus with your questions and doubts and need to understand. And thirdly, letter C, another lesson here is that take to heart what you see and hear. Take to heart what you see and hear. The, the disciples are slower to understand Jesus and his kingdom than they should be, I think is, is a repeated theme in Jesus' interaction with them. Because even though they're, they're seeing what Jesus is doing, they're seeing his compassion, seeing his miracles, they're hearing his teaching, they're taking in this information, they're not really seeing, they're not really hearing they're not taking it to heart. I keep coming back to it, but I think it's a, a key to understanding some of Jesus' rebukes of his disciples. Uh, chapter 6, verse 52, uh, where Mark gives us this editorial comment that the disciples gained no insight from the incident of the loaves, the, the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't, they didn't understand what they should have from that incredible miracle. In Luke chapter 12, there's a passage where Jesus challenges his listeners. He's basically saying, you're not seeing or hearing or or taking to heart, uh, making connections for your life in the world and what what you're seeing in my ministry. And he goes on to give the illustration. You you know how to look at the sky and see the clouds and the color of the sky and know what the weather is going to be like. But you're failing to interpret what's going on with my ministry. You should be, it should be just as clear. They should have seen God clearly at work in Jesus' authoritative teaching and preaching. They should have seen God clearly at work in his powerful miracles, in his compassion and love and care for people. Disciples have taken in the sights of Jesus' miracles, the information of his teaching, but they were uh, failing to grow in faith and hope and love at times. So I just want to uh, put that challenge before you this morning. Are you really taking to heart what you hear from Jesus' word? Whenever you hear that, when you, when you read it, when you hear his word preached, as you reflect on it, when you read your Bible, and maybe just checking it off the list, or are you hearing Jesus in His Word? Uh, it's I, I know from my own experience, it's certainly it's very easy to to read and not to really hear anything, right? Not to um, not to be moved, not to hear the Holy Spirit. I just encourage you to to think about how you can help that, right? How you can 
pursue that. You know, I, I find one, one thing that's very helpful when you're reading the scriptures, any passage you can ask that the second catechism question of summarizes what the scriptures teach of any passage in the Bible. What does this teach about God? What does this teach about me and, and my response to him? My responsibility to him. Pray through the scriptures as you read them. Uh, pray through what you see and learn there. Uh, when you listen to God's word preached uh, in a sermon, uh, pray that God would give you ears to really hear, to, to apply uh, what, what he's speaking, to hear him. Think about other practical ways that might help you in that, because uh, that can be difficult as well. Um, for some people, taking notes about key things in the sermon or, or things that you want to apply or think more about is, is helpful. Um, for other people, and I think this includes some who take notes, taking notes can get in the way of really hearing God speaking in, in the sermon. Um, I, I used to take, before I was preaching, I used to take notes um, regularly and thoroughly when I was listening to sermons. Uh, but I, I found that I never revisited those, really. Um, and that I was well focused on getting a lot of information down, uh, but not necessarily hearing the voice of God, hearing the impact of, um, of the voice of Jesus on me. I, I needed more to simply listen to and to experience the sermons that I was hearing rather than uh, treating them more like a lecture and, and getting the information down I needed. Now that's my story, that's my example. I'm not saying that, that note-taking is not good or not helpful. It is very much for, for some people. My point is simply you need to think about... Um, how you listen um, and, and what works well for you to hear the word of God um, to see what God is doing in this world and, and in your life <laughs> well, lastly I want to come back to the, the illustration that these miracles, these two miracles these bookend miracles are for the disciples um, and number three on your outline here a couple of things I want you to see in this last miracle here um, uh, first, there, there, are, there are nine different references in this brief account of this killing this blind man. Nine different references to sight or seeing or looking. It's, it's not as evident in our English Bibles here. But that it, included in that are eight different Greek words for seeing or, or perceiving or something like that. Um, it, it's an obvious um, stress and emphasis on the theme of seeing uh, and Jesus giving sight. And so I, can't, I think we can't miss the conclusion, the connection, the illustration that it's, Jesus is the one who gives sight and will give sight to his disciples if they continue to come to him. This is also a unique miracle in a couple of ways. Um, Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes and then uniquely asks him a question in the middle of the miracle. Um, verse 23, do you see anything? And then also uniquely, the man responds, basically, well, not really, not, not yet. He, he, he sees a little bit, right? He evidently has been able to see before, and so to know what trees look like, and people just look like fuzzy trees walking around to him. In other words, he's not, he's not quite healed yet. It makes me think of scenes in, in Harry Potter or something where a kid you know, says the, the magical spell you know, not quite right and doesn't quite work right or something like that. Is, is that what's happening here? Um, this is the only miracle in the Gospels that happens in stages. 
doesn't happen immediately. Um, why is that? Did, did Jesus' power fail a little bit here, and then he fixes it? Um, another interesting thing to note is that these are the only two miracles, the deaf man and the blind man here, that are not in, included in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. It's generally understood that um, at least Matthew used Mark's Gospel um, to write his in part. It's the only ones not included. It's been suggested that maybe that was to avoid the appearance that, that Jesus was a little incompetent in this miracle here. Well, I don't think that's what's going on at all if we compare this to um, Jesus' other miracles and certainly understanding who he is. I think this is clearly designed as another lesson for the disciples, that this proceeds in stages. When the man could only half see, he saw people look like fuzzy trees, what did he need? He needed more healing from Jesus, right? It was perfectly parallel to the disciples' growth out of their spiritual blindness, right? It wasn't instant. It proceeded in stages. And what do the disciples need in order to see and understand fully? They need to keep coming to Jesus, we need to be with Jesus. We see the disciples going in these stages from exasperating uh, ignorance and, and deafness and blindness on, on multiple occasions, and here in chapter 8, again, to uh, progressing to significant understanding. We'll see that next week uh, in Peter's confession, and yet it's still, it's still lacking. It still needs correction and teaching, and then they go on to full understanding and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to the point they'll, they'll be willing to give their lives in full understanding of the gospel and Christ's kingdom. And, and your faith and understanding will proceed in stages as well. It does. It, it's not perfect in this life. We'll face difficult and frustrating questions and doubts. Uh, don't wrestle with those on your own. Bring them to the one who gives sight to the blind. Come to Jesus in prayer. Uh, come to his word. Uh, give attention to the preaching of his word. Wrestle with those things with, with faithful friends uh, who will help you understand and see. Jesus will give you hearing and sight and faith and hope uh, through those things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, this morning for your word. Thank you for the uh, honest example of the, the struggle of faith and understanding uh, that, that we all experience uh, in the life of the disciples here. And thank you for the, the strong and yet gracious words of Jesus that point us again and again to himself. We pray that you would uh, give us fuller and fuller understanding. Give us eyes to see what you are doing in our lives and in this world and ears to hear and, and really uh, take to heart your word. Um, we pray this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.